Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing? I'm good, Faisal. How about you? Frozen. Frozen, yeah, it was chilly. Okay, so last week I was at a a conference in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. You were not frozen there, I bet. It hit seven degrees, and I'm like, damn, it's cold here. It's seven? It's seven degrees. Oh, they must have been dropping like flies. Huh? I know. And then I come back, oh. minus 31. <laughs> Can it's I like go a, back to Phoenix, it's like please? like a heat wave. <laughs> so, just tells you, depending on your environment. It's all relative. Isn't it's it? all relative. Yeah. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Based on our environment, what's happening? We've got a great show today. We're going to talk to the Calgary Chamber of Commerce about the whole fall economic statement that mm -hmm. the federal government put out. It's about the environment, mm -hmm. not only literally the environment, but also what's what's happening, what's their view yep. on the ongoing economy. And in what this incentives country. are there and how's it going to affect Calgary business, the Calgary community, right? That's right. We also had a by-election. Mm -hmm. Yep. And our premier's now on board and there's, there's a whole bunch of different things that you can think about that's going on in this province. There is a vision, some say lack of clarity or lack of vision amongst this premier and, and her administration. And so we're going to bring in our experts to talk about that. And, and how does that impact yeah. the average Albertan and then also the ones who want to transition to a live-in retirement? Because this is a very sensitive time. And an election is no, no surprise. We had a a midterm election in the U.S. We had inflation numbers come out. We've had a lot of things that are pushing this market up and down. Market volatility oh, yeah. everywhere. Interday, between the days, weeks. You know, when we get into these environments, we often talk about the specifics. But, you know, Faisal, you and I were chatting as we were thinking about this show. And, and we thought, you know, maybe the, the individual topics change, right? During a week, a day, a month, a year, whatever the case may be. What doesn't change is the process of how to handle it. So let me, let me tell you one of the things that we keep on hearing from our audience. Um, I, I received a message saying, love your concept of structure and discipline, the mm -hmm. superpowers of investing. Mm -hmm. and, and they're right. Those are superpowers of investing. But having a superpower and knowing how to use it are two different things. Yeah. Yeah, I right? think you're right. And I think what, what we need to explain, especially in times like this, is what's the process or what is the structure itself? We've used concepts like five pillars. We've talked about how you look at an economic overview, but there's a process that gets you from where the things are in this world right now, and then how does that translate into a portfolio? Because people are scared. Mm -hmm. There's fear out there. And mm -hmm. with all this volatility, I don't blame them for having the fear. Mm -hmm. Now, when the emotions start to rise and it overtakes your decision-making process, right. That's a problem. Well, that's when your superpowers are at risk. Correct. So let's talk about the structure. Discipline means stick to it. Right. Let's talk about the structure. What does the, the, the ones who are transitioning or living in retirement need to make sure that they have the structure when it comes to their portfolio? Okay, so there's uh, we talk about four buckets. Easy to remember because that's all we can remember is easy stuff. And it, it, <laughs> but, it, but it does coincide, I'm making a bit of fun of it, but it does coincide with the big goal areas that people have, right? Generally, every family, when they retire, needs a source of income to maintain their lifestyle. Correct. So bucket number one, income bucket. So when you have volatility, and it's not like mm -hmm. there was no volatility in other areas beside the stock market, yep, yep. you need to understand that this portion of your money is not going to be subject to the wide gyrations of the stock market if you're not investing in the stock market right. for your income. Right. And so what's been really freaky for a lot of, a lot of uh, Canadians is that they've been relying on dividends 
or they're expecting their their uh, their rent to just pay for their their lifestyle. They're they're expecting you know a, a, a consistent payment of interest to to, and it's not that easy. Right. It's because with inflation kicking up as high as it has, mm -hmm. you you might need more money. Yep. Where do you get it from? Yep. So having that income bucket structure number one. Let's put some cash aside. Let's put some money aside. Invest outside the stock market so that you don't have those wide gyrations. And you're looking at minimum three years. Yes, I would say. Um, well, listen, it depends on each family. But I think if we're using rules of thumb, let's go with the rule of thumb three years. Three years right now, generally speaking, we always talk about 10. Yep. But in a high inflation area, you don't want to want to beat inflation over time. You need that growth. So three years is a good look at where right. you need in that income bucket. And so, and so the strategy can change. Sometimes it was ten. It can be it can be modified to you know depending on the environment. But the structure doesn't change. The structure. You change. need an income bucket. Correct. Period. Let's okay. go to the growth side of it. So you need income, yep. but you also need your money to grow because inflation, yep. and you're going to spend more money over time, and you want to you want to basically live that lifestyle that you want. What's the structure you need in the in the growth side? We call it the growth bucket. Yep. Keep in mind that there's a lot of fear out there. Many investors are saying, I'm done. Cash me out. Right. I'm out. Because what's happening here, I can't handle it. Right. So walk me through the understanding of the structure in the growth bucket. Well, listen, the structure of the growth bucket is simply to have um, is some of your wealth allocated to assets that are designed to grow over time. Okay? Grow over time. The strategy within what you're invested in can change, but the structure itself, again, has to you have to maintain a pool of assets that are designed for that particular purpose. And then you need to, within that structure, have a discipline okay, that is both active, responds to whatever the current environment is, right? But it's got a time frame long enough to support the replenishment of the income bucket. So here's where I think understanding data is very important. So when you sit down with us as portfolio managers who's all, who are putting this, this strategy together, one thing that we do a lot of is we look at where we are today, economically speaking, in the markets, geopolitical, and we look and we go, okay, here's where we are today. When in history has it been somewhat similar to the metrics like it is today? I'm not saying the same theme, but the metrics. Okay, so we go back in time and we look at all the different periods in time, what's happened. And I'll give some examples. Yep. In times like this, where we are right now, 12 and 24 months out later, in large and mid-sized companies, generally in, in the developed nations, yep. tend to outperform and give you a better average rate of return if you've kept that strategy for 24 months than if you go into cash, go out, or deviate from that strategy. Right. So we know that's the... That's what history has told us. Right. Okay. So we know that there's a good probability we should be, I don't know, investing in mid to large developed nation co companies that are able to grow. Okay. They're able to grow. What do you have to look for? Then we look back in history and say, okay, in order for companies that need to grow so they can have appreciation in the value of that company, they have to grow at a rate better than what you can get that's risk-free. Right. Which is... U.S. Let's use the U.S. Treasury let's, bond. Let's use that U.S. Treasury four to four and a half percent. Let's even go as high as five percent to make it easy for the math. In order for a company that needs to grow and provide you a better rate of return on your investment 
they have to grow at least five or six percent more than what you can get in bonds. Because it's got to be attractive. You got to get some additional premium for the risk that you're going to assume. And you don't want to pay for that growth up front. Right. So when you look at that, purely at the metrics, now you can start to filter through and say what companies based on today's situation. Now today's situation means maybe these earnings have to go back a little bit. They're not as frothy. They're They're not gonna grow as much. They're gonna be discounted to a certain degree. And then you can say, okay, based on this discounted value, are they able to grow at five or 6% better than bonds? And if the answer is no, then go to bonds. Right. Go to something safer. You won't get the high returns, but you're not gonna take high risk and high losses. Right. On the other side is if you do see that value, if you do see that opportunity of those companies growing, then you invest in that. And here's where I think the biggest problem is. People invest in a market, they don't invest in companies. I just want to invest in a market. I'm going to invest in US. Well, yeah. And the problem with that is then you just take a macro view of the US and you have that decision for all, oh, I don't know, 4,000 companies in the US. Right. And you've put a big paintbrush over them and say, all those 4,000 companies are going to do terrible because I think the US is going to do terrible. Or all three, 395 Canadian companies that are listed on the major exchange are all terrible. Right. Because I think Canada's going to do terrible. Nobody can make money. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's the paintbrush you want to live in? Like, I think we can look and say, hang on, I'm not that naive. I know there are good companies out there. And business owners in this country will agree with me. With right. me. No matter how the economy is going, they're still looking at ways to grow their business. Yeah. So why aren't these larger businesses that are publicly traded doing the same thing? And they are. Give them the same respect. Yeah, they are. For sure. There's your opportunity. Right. I love these times. The shopping list is growing. You and I, I, I come into your office on a regular. Dave, yep. shopping list, yep. take a look. Yeah, I mean, there's big adjustments. Get ready. Absolutely. Get ready. And the shopping list is growing and there's opportunity. And I think this is where we can shine. We had the uh, the fall economic statement come up by the federal government. Mm-hmm. How's it going to affect uh, us here? Yeah, so what's interesting about this economic statement, and let's put, a, put the tax side stuff on, on, on the side, but about what they're trying to solve for for a couple of problems that they've identified. One, labor shortages. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, what they're trying to solve for is building the economy, even though we're slowing. They've kind of hinted that the recession is coming in Canada. Um, but the interesting part of this is what I think they missed out on is the opportunity for business owners here, the risk to business owners. And then there's this one demographic in this country, especially in this city that's got high skill, they're transitioning to the to retirement, but they could be utilized in the market, which I don't think was really addressed, or nor has any other major media outlet has talked about this opportunity right. that business owners have with we'll call the 55 plus crowd the the wiser, more experienced group <laughs> of our citizens out there in this city and in this province. So let's talk to the ones who kind of know about businesses in the city. Deborah Yeldon is the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, Deborah, maybe we can, um, I mean, you've had a chance, I assume by now, obviously, to go through the federal fall economic statement. Maybe you can outline some areas that you think look promising. Well, obviously, there was a nod to the Inflation Reduction Act south of the border, which is going to put us in some measure on the same foot as what has been pushed, put forward in the, in, in the IRA 
to enhance the investment in clean technologies in in Canada. Because right as it stood before the fiscal economic update, um, we were definitely on the back foot, and there were dollars that were going to be going south of the border to sort of invest in clean tech and other opportunities. And so we look at the hydrogen initiative, we look at the carbon uh, credit, the ITC credit being absolutely critical to sort of fostering that opportunity and really it's, it's part of our economic opportunity going forward. So that was that was something that we were very, very pleased with. Obviously, the immigration piece that the government had announced about how do we address the talent issues, that's something that's, you know, everybody's bidding on that last unit of labor. What do we do about it? How do we make sure that we can attract people to Canada to make sure that we uh, we fill those labor those, those those gaps which we know exist. So so Deborah, when you look at the labor shortages that are happening, and let's talk about this city of Calgary as an example, um, we don't always get the lion's share of newly arrived Canadians coming to Calgary. We get a small percentage. Of, most of them go to other areas in the country. Um, when you look at the opportunity for business owners to handle the labor shortage here, um, is this immigration strategy the right one or are there other ways that the city of Calgary, the province of Alberta can bring the talent that we're looking for to fill those labor shortages? So there's three things. One is the labor piece and how do we make sure that Calgary and Alberta is an attractive place for people to come when they do come from some another part of the world. The second piece is to make sure that there is affordable childcare for working families so that women can go back into the workforce because we know that the pandemic disproportionately affected women in terms of how they had to leave uh, the workplace. So that's the second piece. And the third thing is, is you know, we have a, a workforce that is educated and has a lot of institutional memory. And some people have to be helped with learning other skills so that they can contribute to different businesses and sort of that sort of diversification opportunity that is also started to take root in Calgary. So we need sort of childcare, we need to, to attract immigration, and we also need to upskill and reskill people who may think they want to leave the workforce, but maybe they don't. I hear from many of our audience that it's very challenging for anybody in their late 50s, early 60s to find their next role that they want to go to. And some are basically being, I'll call it, forced out or forced into retirement. And, and some of them don't want to retire. They mm -hmm. want to still be engaged uh, as an employee. Um, when what do, I what do I tell these individuals or what would you uh, advise these individuals who are seeing this, this experience or having this experience? What, what's the take that you would give to these individuals? And then what would you tell government or policymakers to encourage um, uh, having that demographic still being engaged in business today? So from the perspective of the person that may be retiring um, reluctantly, there are so many opportunities that are arising in Calgary and people need to have that kind of institutional memory and that experience to guide the young entrepreneurs, the startups. So there's a startup community in Calgary that's growing rapidly. They need mentors. They need that oversight. And so that's, you know, what I would advise people to do is say, what do you really like to do? And maybe it's not in the career that you did for the last 20 or 30 years. Maybe it's something different, but you have something to offer. You always have something to offer. So figure out where you want to deploy your experience how you can help the younger generation realize their goals and start having meetings, figure out the sector that you want to be in, find out where there are meetup spaces, what are the networking opportunities. Obviously, Calgary Chamber is a big place where we convene people, that's, that's become a Calgary Chamber member, look at our events, meet people that way. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, is how do we make sure that people know about the upskilling and reskilling opportunities that already exist. And so that's partly on the government, that's partly on the city, it's partly on the University of Calgary. You know, the University of Calgary has the largest continuing education program in the country. 
So there are so many things that you have to do a little bit of legwork. You have to have coffee meetings and you have to figure out where you want to actually augment your skill set. There is a lot. If you want to do something, you can do it in Calgary. Deborah, what's the, um, maybe change gears just a little bit. The number one um, perhaps agenda item that the Chamber's got with respect to Calgary business, I mean, we've got some uncertainty with respect to the global economy, the Canadian economy, uh, provincial perhaps doing a little bit better, but maybe you can share with us uh, some of the, the, the key areas the Chamber's focused on to finish out this year and going into 2023? Well, you know, what we're looking for is affordability. That's obviously something that we're very concerned with as we look to attract people to, to, to Alberta and to Calgary. We want to make sure that there's an affordable a aspect to, to people coming here. We want to continue to attract talent. We want to continue to attract opportunity. We want to continue to diversify our, diversify our economy. And we want to be seen as an inclusive workforce and an inclusive city. That is welcoming and so we that that's one of the areas that we're focusing we're also focusing on infrastructure i mean we need to have investments in infrastructure that continue to support the economic opportunities in in calgary and we also are very focused on that this issue of you know how do we make sure that we've got the educational scaffolding to help people you know accredit re-accredit you know when we look about the when we look at the immigration opportunities people have to be able to have the ability to recertify in the professions that they have trained to, to work in 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 Canada and so that's that's something that we're absolutely focused on we're also you know something else is how do we increase interprovincial trade what do we make how do we decrease the barriers to doing business what does that look like how do we make sure that Alberta continues to be a jurisdiction where people want to come and do business and so you know there's so many different things that we're continuously focused on in, in just in from a from a position of making sure that Calgary's set up for success long term that was perfect. Yeah, I think so. Um, and we're, we're quickly running out of time, but I would, um, you know, we're coming up on a, I guess, a 2023 budget. The government's working on that. What do you, what do you want to see as a focus in, in that particular document? Oh, there are a number of things that we'd like to see. Obviously, we're very focused on what is going to happen from an energy sector perspective. We know that the, you know, one of the things that we're waiting to hear about is the, is the emissions cap what that means for for the sort of energy going forward how we can see the stewardship of of development of the of our energy sector make sure that it still has the opportunity that it deserves to continue to grow uh, we're looking at taxation issues we're looking at how the canada growth fund will be stewarded who is going to be sitting on that board it's going to be independently constituted how are we going to make sure that alberta gets that kind of funding obviously healthcare is a big deal what does that look like going forward? As we know, the, the, the challenges associated with healthcare, there's a healthcare um, summit going on right now with all the, first, the healthcare ministers. So there's so many different pieces that we want to see addressed in the budget. Uh, but we also want to see fiscal prudence, and we also want to make sure that the investments are allocated in a way that it does create economic growth. I think that's the one thing that we haven't seen um, as deliberately from the federal government as we'd like to. What is the growth strategy? What does it look like? How are you going to make it happen? And what do the investments and in what areas are you going to invest in? Deborah, thank you very much. Um, that's a lot to cover. I think you did a great job in the time that we had allocated and we appreciate you keeping us up to speed uh, on all of these complex issues. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We've been joined by uh, Deborah Yedlin, who's the president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. Well, we've got a new premier, yeah. officially, by-elections through. Done. Got the results. Yep, she's What's in. It? What's it all mean? Yeah, this is a very interesting time to see how this whole premier change happened. Mm -hmm. um, all of the, I'll call it drama, thanks to all the posts, Twitter feeds, and everything else on social media happening. But we kind of want to look at what's the overview of this this new premier and, the, and, and her vision. Uh, she's definitely not a stranger to this, this station, of course. And so 
you know, where does it go from here? And how do we actually, you know, view this province with, with uh, Danielle Smith being the premier of this province? How does, it, how does it all work out? So let's bring on, of course, our reoccurring expert on this topic, Laurie Williams, associate professor at Mount Royal University. Laurie, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Laurie, maybe you can just give us a quick overview um, of, the, of the results of the by-election. Uh, you know, I was reading about it, um, and I'll get your comments on it, but the margin to me looked maybe a little skinnier than what the, uh, you know, the team would have probably liked to see. Um, but I'm no expert. You're the expert. Um, what did you see? Well, they definitely wanted a, a more decisive margin of victory, but, you know, a victory is a victory, and they'll, they'll take that and try to parlay that into something bigger. But just, just to put this into perspective, an unknown candidate in the 2019 general election uh, got a higher percentage of the vote and a, a larger number of, of net votes. There was a, a, a nearly 47%, I think, margin, uh, sorry, 42% margin between um, the winning candidate in the general election and the next highest competitor. That margin shrunk significantly here down to um, about 22, 23% margin of victory. And if you put the Alberta party and the, and the, um, NDP party together, um, they're running fairly close. I mean, there were times last night where where it was looking like it might dip under 50%. Uh, and that is why I think Danielle Smith said it was a nail biter. She knew she had to get a, a, a real majority. And, and let's remember, this is a conservative stronghold. Uh, she was expected to win by a large margin. And this tells her that it's a tougher fight than perhaps she anticipated. Look also at what happened in Brooks and in Medicine Hat proper in those in those urban centers. Uh, she didn't win those. Uh, the uh, Medicine Hat was won by the NDP candidate, um, Ms. Dirk. Uh, she, run, she won the popular vote in Medicine Hat. So that also speaks to the concerns around uh, Daniel Smith's appeal in, in urban areas. So it's, it's I think, a, a mistake to divide ca uh, Alberta into just the three zones of Edmonton, Calgary, and rural, because there are a lot of folks in technically urban Alberta, as some people might have thought of it historically, who are actually living in urban centers and are, are dealing with different issues and looking for different answers than they've seen so far from Danielle Smith. Uh, Laurie, when we look at where Danielle Smith is as of today, um, how how has she done, if you were to give her a, a grade on her report card, <laughs> what would it look like? And then also, what can she do now from this point on to, to kind of bring the province together and, and actually address the concerns from the election, the by-election, the the con conversation they've been having in the party on its own, and then what generally the public is kind of wanting overall. Right. So the problem for, for Danielle Smith is that she campaigned on a number of issues that weren't sort of top of mind for Albertans. And, and I think the attention paid to the race was relatively low amongst folks that weren't actually engaged in voting for it. Um, as soon as she got elected, she said that she wasn't going to hold a by-election in Calgary, uh, uh, Calgary Elvo. Uh, but was going to have someone step down so she could run here in in Brooks Medicine Hat. That raised questions about her commitment to to de democratic accountability. Uh, that I think was quite problematic. Then she gave an interview saying that she really didn't need Calgary uh, except for a few seats there. That of course uh, offended not just the folks at Calgary Elbow, but really put her offside of of people in Calgary. Uh, first day of premier, she talked about the discrimination against uh, unvaccinated 
people and a lot of her social media posts and videos and columns and so forth have come up to haunt her. And she's continued to refer to and support some of the things that she's said historical, historically. So what she's been doing is trying to uh, in, try to engage in damage control, not just for the things she said before she uh, was even running for the leadership, but the things that she has said as a leadership candidate and now as leader and premier. That's a terrible place to be starting out when you've got an election six months away. So she's definitely got a lot of challenges on her hands of her own making. And I think you, you're noticing a bit of a change in, in the focus or the language now. She's talking about her team. She's, she's trying to sort of... Um, focus on on the entire UCP caucus rather than on her in the hopes that that will generate a little bit more support, that that perhaps the popularity of her party will be enough to take her over the, the finish line in the general election. Now, she has a lot of money to work with, and that's certainly an advantage, something the NDP uh, doesn't have. So Daniel Smith won't, won't just be talking about her vision for handling inflation, healthcare, and education. She'll actually be throwing money at, at these problems. The question is whether money is going to be enough. And, and you folks are experts on, on that side of things. These are intractable problems that go far beyond Alberta's borders. And to think that, that Daniel Smith is going to fix them or, or even make a material difference, that's, that's a, an open question. And if she doesn't, then she's going to face significant headwinds going into the general election. Here's a conversation that's been happening uh, behind the scenes. I call it the water cooler talk uh, of many Albertans is, what does the UCP stand for as of now with Daniel as the leader? What are their core values? So as we go into this next election, it's going to be coming down the pike. Um, what do they really stand for? And how different is it from what, let's say, the NDP stand for? And so that people can kind of get an idea of what the heck is going to happen in this next election. So from your perspective, what do you think are today the core values of the UCP? Party. Well, that's unfortunately a question that's difficult to answer, and that's a problem for the UCP because Danielle Smith herself hasn't been 100% clear and consistent on her position on a number of issues. What the Sovereignty Act is actually going to look look like now as opposed to what she said it would mean during, during the campaign, and of course she said it would mean different things during the campaign. So a lot of people are wondering exactly what Danielle Smith does stand for. Um, those past and present comments she's made about uh, about uh, vaccines and um, therapeutics and, and so forth could could be problematic for her. So far, her solution to the problems in healthcare are to fire AHS and possibly the College of Physicians and Surgeons. You would have thought she would have lot, uh, won, uh, sorry, learned the lesson uh, to not attack the healthcare workers that were their heroes during the during the pandemic. Um, so it's difficult to know what she stands for. First of all, and secondly. The party itself is deeply divided. There are people who think very different things within the party. I mean, we're seeing uh, in the in the Livingston McLeod um, uh, race, the the, no, the the nominee of the local constituency association has been disqualified by the board. Now the new board with a whole bunch of take back Alberta candidates, about half the board are going to decide whether or not she can stand as a candidate. And if she can't, Having said things that are similar to what Daniel Smith has said, what does that mean for the party? Where do the moderates fit um, within the party? I mean, there are deep divisions within the party and what it stands for uh, and whether they can be united in sort of a common vision for the future is a, a very open question. 
By contrast, the NDP does have a pretty clear vision for what they want to do. And they're not just criticizing the current government for its failures on, on various policies and files. They're providing their alternatives. And uh, that sort of stable vision for the future, those ideas about how things could be improved, could be uh, more appealing to folks that are looking for stability. And, and they're not seeing a lot of it, unfortunately, so far with the UCP. Okay. Well, it's going to make for an interesting six months as we see the messaging all come together and what Albertans decide to do. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. And we want to thank you, Laurie, for joining us today. It's been some good insight. We're going to obviously bring you back and give it the synopsis probably after the election again. So we've been joined by Laurie Williams, Associate Professor at Mount Royal University. Thanks for joining us, Laurie. Thank you very much. When somebody passes away, family, um, I've never heard anybody in a, in a conversation express to us that they want to be a, they want it to be a problem. I'm my passing. I want it to be a problem for my family. Yeah. What we don't hear <laughs> is I want it to be a problem. I want CRA as the number one beneficiary. Right. I want to make sure that my family fights. I want to make it tied up in the in the system of probate right. for months, maybe years, or in a court. All that or, stuff is yeah. is a problem, uh, and and no one has said that they want that problem. Nobody's ever said that. What they don't realize is there's a problem upon death, yeah. when especially if you are the uh, the one that has all the wealth, and then you're passing it on to either the next generations or charities of your choice, and this is where it becomes a big problem. And I don't think most Albertans, most Canadians have a process that they have to go through yeah. to prepare for this. I, and I think you're right on the money with, with process. Um, there's so many f families have all different dynamics and complexities and different amounts of wealth and so on and so forth. So talking about necessarily individual strategies doesn't make a lot of sense, but process does make sense because the process that somebody can go through in terms of planning and then the distribution of those assets is the same, right? The, the the steps you can go through to make sure everything is properly structured. Here's what um, peers in our industry and our friends in the accounting world say to their clients. Do you have a will? The answer is yes or no. If it's no, go get a will. If it's yes, great, update it. That's it. Right. That's where it stops. Apparently, estate planning, passing on your assets as a gift to whomever you choose, is just a, a will, maybe a power of attorney and personal directive as well. Right. That's it. Right. And to be clear, those those are important documents. You've got to have them in place. Absolutely. But boy, that is the bare minimum. Those are table stakes for proper estate planning. Absolutely. That's that's the table stake. I like the way you said that. So let's talk about the process from start to finish on how do you make sure you address your biggest concerns that you may have in the event of death. Right. Step one, what do we do? Family. Family goals and objectives. Right? We've got to start with a, a narrative. I can't tell you how often we'll have a conversation with a couple. When you start digging a little bit below the surface, they're not necessarily on the same page mm -hmm. about what they want for the family, what the goals and objectives are ultimately for that wealth they've created that will be gifted to whomever they want that gift to go to. So some of the, some of the differences I hear is, ah, whatever's left over, give it to the kids. Or I hear the other spouse say, whoa, 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 I think we have a responsibility to continue to provide some sort of experience for our, for our, our adult children, maybe our grandchildren, and I want to leave something or provide something for them 
and it may not be upon death, it may even be while I'm alive. Right. Right. So that's still planning that is required. Right. Okay. And so the when you say that there's a couple, they may not be on the same page when you look beneath the surface, a lot of them just say whatever's left over they get. Mm-hmm. Let's split them up equally amongst the kids. When you start digging into that and the family dynamics, it's not as simple all the time. Well, and the family dynamics is the second one. So you got the goals and objectives, right? Yeah. And then um, it's not always to, easy to look at your family with a, a kind of a, an open lens, right? Um, it's hard to say this child has a problem or I need to protect or this might not turn out well, right? So the, the family dynamic conversation is a very interesting one, but it, but it has to be, you have to do it you have to be prepared to have that conversation in a realistic light. Let me tell you a story that happened uh, last week um, with one of our clients. The couple sat down with me, said we were talking about the estate plan and the legacy bucket, that was what we call it. And I said, so when you pass these assets on to your children, you comfortable <clears throat> with that? No, no issues? They're like, yeah, the, these kids get along so well. I got a phone call, not even 24 hours later. Hazel, I was kind of shy and embarrassed to tell you this, but our kids don't always get along, and I'm kind of worried if they, if they have, if get yeah. this kind of cash, yeah. there might be some problems yeah. there. And so I want to make it as easy and simple as possible. And I don't, I want to minimize any chance of fighting because they, they get along on, on, on most times, but right. I think this is something they might not always agree on. Okay, so process takes us through, through the dynamics. You should complete, um, you know, you should have a plan. You should understand what that estate is going to look like, right? You need you need to have some view of what will be left behind. Is it just a house? Is it a bunch of cash? Is there a company? What is it? Literally draw your family tree on the on a on a piece of paper or on a board and say, okay, here are the assets and here's how we're splitting it up. Yeah. It could literally be just sell everything and divide the cash. Yeah. Or it could be specific assets go to specific individuals. Right. And then you look at that and go, is that what I want to see? Right. And then once you've got that strategy in place, now you need a third person's point of view of, okay, what could go wrong? Right. Tax-wise, family dynamics, mm-hmm. privacy. Privacy is also a concern for some. They don't yeah. want they don't want the government's nose in their business. Probate, not a cost problem necessarily in Alberta, different in other provinces, but it can be a time issue. During the pandemic, and I can tell you this, that there are people who've gone through the probate process and it's been over 12 months before they can release the funds of that estate because probate got locked up. And an executor may have expenses to front over that period in order to get all this done, and that may put a financial strain on them. Out-of-pocket expenses. There is probate issues. Then there is CRA not giving a release. Right to the estate of any taxes owing, and and that document takes time. Oh my Lord, this is a cumbersome process. So part of our job when we sit down with the plan is to see how we can minimize or negate these burdens, these these issues, these long time frames between death and disbursement of assets. And that requires strategy. Right. And it goes back to the, the, the burden issue, right? You, nobody wants to be that burden. So through some, and there's lots of different ways to do it. There's lots of tools in the tool chest to help people with the transition of assets quickly, right? With the protection against taxation, with the privacy issues, the probating, 
All of those things. There's lots of tools to and do And protecting the family dynamics that you may have. Right. Okay, so I've got two teenage girls. God bless them. I love them both. Yep. Um, but they're different. But they're different. Sure. If I was to leave 50% of my money to one versus the other, you'd be surprised. The one that I we would think, my youngest, would probably not spend a dime. Right. Life is good right. in her views. Doesn't need it. The older one, well, <laughs> got some different ideas. She'll probably, and I'm not saying she's this type of person, but I can see it. Right. It's within the realm of possibility. Right. Uh, she she may go shopping a bit too much. Mm -hmm. You know? Yep. And so and I love her. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if I was to pass away today, and I know that when they turn 18, they could get a bucket of money. Right. And do I want them to go shopping? Right. And And spend all that money at the age of 18? No. Or I have an aging parent that I might have to take care of physically, maybe financially. Yep. If I'm not here, who's going to take care of that individual? Right. It's on me. Right. I've got to provide for that. So there's different, because I'm in this somewhat sandwich generation, as are you, yep. you have to think of not only the next generation below, but the generation above. And I don't want everybody to know my business. Right. So I do want some privacy. And things can change, obviously, as you get older, right? Um, you can face issues. Health uh, will be an issue for all of us at some point to varying degrees. Um, and there's things that you can and can't do as health changes, right? To, um, to, to improve the situation, reduce the burden, as we're calling it, on the executor or the people that are going to be responsible for taking care of your affairs after you're gone. So, you know, it, it's dynamic. We always talk about that. Things change. And there's layers, right? It's not one size fits all at every point in your life. And how you structure your wealth mm -hmm. and all your assets to not only meet your needs of today, tomorrow, but also meet the needs of when you pass away. And I think having a retirement transition specialist working on this part of your plan, which is in the event of passing, what happens? You have that protection, you have that understanding, and above all, that, that team... Make sure you update that strategy on an ongoing basis because laws change, no. families change in what, what's happening, and your views about what you want for that gift to be may change as well. Yep. So reviewing it on a regular basis, I think, is the is important, and that's part of the process to make sure that you don't you don't leave a burden to whomever you choose as the executor or beneficiaries of your estate. And it's amazing that review process is critical, Faisal. I just did my will probably three years ago, updated it. I was reviewing it again, um, and I found an uh, uh, um, a discrepancy in it that I need to get changed now. Hmm. And these are the little things that I wouldn't even have thought about it unless I was just casually, like, I just want to review it. And then it, if you don't do that regularly, it's amazing how quickly things can, can change. Can change. Yeah, Absolutely. and you don't even think about it. Okay. Um, listen, we have to leave it there, but the legacy bucket is an important part of the four buckets that we're going to talk about at our upcoming seminar. If you want to come to our seminar, talk about this, or you want to meet with us, here's how you can do that on Tuesday, November 15th, 7 p.m. in person at the Silver Springs Golf and Country <clears> Club. <throat> so if you want to come to that seminar and learn about this, definitely go to morethanmoneyready.com to register, or just contact us on that same website if you want to have a sit-down chat about your estate planning needs, that's morethanmoneyradio.com. And I'll remind everybody that any of our past segments are also available on morethanmoneyradio.com if you want to tune into any of that. But thank you for tuning in to today's edition of More Than Money, and we look forward to chatting with you next week. On behalf of Faisal, 
And myself, Dave, have a great weekend. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.